You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Elon Musk, he lashes out at the state of financial markets. We'll break down the billionaire's comments and get an outlook for tech stocks in the new year. And an $80 billion route underway in China as Beijing imposes new curbs on gaming. We'll break down the implication for the country's giant internet sector. Plus, we talk all things AI as ChatGPT ends the year with a long list of new competitors. What will 2024 bring? Then here and now is Elon Musk. Kathy Wood and Elon Musk do a spaces. It's wide ranging. Elon Musk goes after the public markets. He basically says there's too much regulatory burden on being a public company. And he wades into the passive versus active investing debate. Tesla is the only publicly traded proxy I've got for you, Caro. It's up six tenths of a percent, up 107 percent year to date. A beneficiary, one might say, outpacing the S&P 500's gain of 20 percent in the public markets that Musk had a lot to say about. He did. And of course, it's kind of music to Kathy Wood's ears, who, of course, has an actively managed set of ETFs. It was wide ranging, wasn't it, on X? And overall, we did see Elon Musk really pushing back and pushing out again, it feels, at the state of U.S. financial markets. I mean, we're just looking at the moment of Tesla holders, for example. Just take a listen to what he had to say. The percentage of the market that is passive is simply is too great at this point. Um, so at the end of the day, somebody actually has to make an active decision. Um, the, the passive investors are riding on the decisions of the active investors. You, you get essentially massive movements of the stock uh, based on the decisions of maybe four or five uh, active major uh, stock pickers. And look, of course, Elon Musk himself is the biggest holder of Tesla stock, but then it's Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street. We can dig into all of this with Bloomberg's Max Trafkin. And we've heard him rail against the fact that there's a lot of passive money now. Does he have a point? 
I mean, you know, there's, first of all, no surprise that he's railing against the, uh, you know, regulatory burden of running a public company. He has for years clashed with the SEC, has, you know, been firing off insults at, at, at the SEC, um, you know, for years. Uh, so, so, so no surprise there. Um, in terms of the active versus passive, I mean, I think this is a case to some extent of, of, of both of these people talking their books. As you said, Kathy Wood, active, uh, active manager, also runs a, a venture, you know, venture fund newly, which is making, fun, making its investments available uh, to, to investors. She talked about that on the podcast. So there's sort of lots of reasons for them to talk about, hey, hey, you know, the Vanguard approach isn't great. Also, you know, Elon Musk is a guy who benefits from the kind of vibe style exactly. investing. And, and I think, you know, anything that's not vibes is not as good for Tesla and his companies. But in the five or six years that I've covered Elon Musk, he has benefited from the capital markets. And he has been pretty clear that he doesn't lose that much sleep over the, the thoughts of investors. In the even longer period of time that you've covered Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, that has been true as well. Just what was his basic argument about the functioning of markets? This is what I don't get. What is he arguing in favor of? Well, I mean, he's tapping into kind of a long-running critique about the the power of money managers, um, which which you know is, is it's not something exclusive to Tesla. I mean, the, the point is that a lot of investors are investing money with these big asset managers. Therefore, these big asset managers um, tend to sort of all herd together. And you know, it, it, honestly, it's it's not a particularly novel argument or one that I think holds a ton of water. Obviously, these these funds have done very well for for most people and. And, and as you say, Ed, um, you know, Tesla and Elon Musk has done incredibly well thanks to the capital markets, which he did acknowledge, you know, at another part of this um, X Spaces event. You know, he, he, he acknowledged that one of the reasons you put up with this regulatory burden, of course, is because the amount of capital that he has access to on the public markets exactly. is way greater than on a private market. The biggest single shareholder of Tesla, by the way, is Elon Musk, 13%, then it's Vanguard, BlackRock and State Street, HDS on the Bloomberg. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, thank you so much for joining us this Friday. Let's stick with the public markets and get a broader outlook on the technology sector into 2024. Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy at Fidelity Investments. Fantastic to have you on the show this Friday. Just real quick, let's get your take on on Mr. Musk's view of of active versus passive, the, the influence in the markets. What do you make of that? Well, I think that when you look back in terms of history, if you were seeing very different market reactions in terms of how stocks were moving, then you would say one is uh, more market moving than the other. I've heard a lot of arguments in terms of, well, most of the market is passive, therefore it's building up these dislocations or potential bubbles causing these uh, massive moves in stocks. And actually, when you look back through history, I'm not seeing any difference in terms of patterns in the data that I look at. So, you know, I think, you know, you can always think about it from an allocation perspective, if you buy a technology ETF, or even if you stay in cash as an investor, that is an active decision. So it certainly mm-hmm. depends on who you're talking to uh, when you think about active versus passive. Yeah, and all of this, I mean, they're sort of speaking out of one side of the mouth to be this is democratization ultimately when you're able to have access to big ETFs, but also it's democratization when you're able to have access to actively managed ETFs as well, Denise. And I'm interested, therefore, if, if investors are thinking, okay, strategize to me at the moment. Should I, with the amount of chunk of change I have in cash, vis-a-vis the amount that I currently have in the market allocated to tech, should I can remain allocated to technology given the outperformance of 2023? 
Right. I mean, 2023 has been a great year in terms of technology leadership and an unexpected year in terms of just how strong the market has been. And I think that's a cautionary note to investors by using bad news to stay on the sidelines because stocks are this discounting mechanism. So by the time news gets good, uh, the gains may already be in. But I will say, as we approach 2024, I think that I'm still looking at some constructive signals. One, on the earnings front, both in technology and for the broader market, a lot of things in terms of that we saw costs increase and costs take down corporate profit margins over the course of the last year seems to be unwinding with unit labor costs decelerating and the PPI relative to the CPI also decelerating. And that's one of the reasons why technology stocks have done so well, even though earnings hasn't been quite very strong. And it's usually when you see stocks move ahead of the earnings, which to most people in the market, that's, well, wait, if the stocks moved ahead of earnings, then maybe that creates a negative risk reward. But when you look back through history, stocks more often than not, which is not to say every time, actually get it right. And mid-cycle earnings tend to be higher if the stocks move first. And I think that that's part of what you're seeing in technology, which is a constructive outlook and a positive risk reward, despite the leadership we've seen as we approach 2024. Uh, Denise, I would love to take a look back through history. Let's do it. 24 hours ago on the show, Denny Fish of Janice Henderson joined us. And I made the point, well, if you go back to 2018, when I moved to San Francisco and tracked the NASDAQ 100 relative to the S&P 500, it outperforms. And Denny made the point, well, if you go back to 1995, when I moved to San Francisco relative to the S&P 500, it outperforms. Year to date, the gain on the NASDAQ 100 is 53%, S&P 500, 24%. Does anything change that? that historic trend in 2024. I mean, what you see, I mean, what you're talking about is essentially a you know, statistical concept of thrust, meaning that did this massive momentum, is, are you more likely to sell that or are you more likely to buy that? And this is true specifically in the, the numbers that you were just talking about, but even in the broader S&P, you know, six weeks uh, increasing um, on a weekly basis, that's a rare signal. And is that rare signal better or worse? And what you find in history is the more thrust you have or the better something has done, the more likely likely it is to continue to do well in the future. I mean, the concept of momentum is well explored, but I think that most people want to sell that momentum, where actually statistically, and again, this is not to say that 100% of the time it works, but the more you've seen something move, the more likely the market is right, that there is a potential catalyst coming up. And one of those catalysts, I do think, is the increase in earnings that we're likely to see over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Okay, so if you've got the capacity to, and you're not just finding exposure via the NASDAQ or the NASDAQ 100. Can you rotate within technology? Is it time to broaden out from the Magnificent Seven? No, that's a great question because it has been fairly dominant both in technology and in the broader market. There's really been, let's call it one trade, which is technology and technology-related stocks. And I do think 2024, we have the catalyst of potentially lower rates now that does suggest market broadening historically. But on top of that, you have a lot of what I call dislocation variables, meaning that there's a really wide dispersion in the valuations within technology. And typically, when you see wide dispersion, that's not only 
good for the sector, but it's good for broadening out of the sector. I mean, think about something like software even, that finally for the first time since 2014 is now out of the top quartile on valuation, which changes your risk reward. All of a sudden you're starting to see these signals broaden out to maybe equal weighted tech, as opposed to something that's been very dominant in the cap weighted indices. And this is not just within technology. I think that this is within the broader S&P. It's been a very tight market in terms of the sector outperformance, but I do think that that's likely to shift because we're evolving from a situation where 2023 was really a contraction in earnings with higher rates to 2024 potentially being the exact opposite. Rates might have peaked and we're actually starting to see an acceleration in earnings. Um, And that is usually coincident with a broadening market. Oh, some optimism as we let you do some panic purchasing to finish off this year. Happy holidays to Denise Chisholm. Thank you so much for spending time with us of course, of Fidelity Investments. Meanwhile, coming up, fresh restrictions in China have sent the video game industry into a tizzy. We'll discuss more with Lisa Cosmas Hansen, President and CEO of Nico Partners, true expertise in this particular realm. Stick with us. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time for Talking Tech. And first up in the news, Lionsgate Entertainment is merging its studio business with special purpose acquisition company Screaming Eagle. The new entity will trade on the NASDAQ in a deal that values the business at $4.6 billion, including debt. Premium cable channel Stars is not included in the deal. And as of Thursday afternoon, Apple is no longer selling its Series 9 and Ultra 2 watches online in the US. Apple also says it won't be able to repair any out-of-warranty watch models. This comes just days before a ban imposed by U.S. regulators related to a patent dispute
dispute scheduled to halt all sales effective December 25th. Sales will continue at Apple stores internationally, both in online and in person. Plus, ASML says it has shipped the first parts of its newest chip-making machine to Intel. Parts of its state-of-the-art high NA Extreme Ultraviolet system was shipped to Intel's D1X factory in Oregon, according to Bloomberg sources. It's a win-win for both companies, who are among the first important companies in the chip-making industry. Carrie. Well, let's just stick on really the theme that we were raising at the beginning and the market impact of today of Tencent, which has led an $80 billion sell-off in some of China's biggest online names. Ed. Look, this comes after what seemed as a kind of a surprise imposition of new gaming curbs reviving all those fears that Beijing may again be targeting the country's giant internet sector. For more, we want to bring in Lisa Cosmas Hansen, President and CEO of Nico Partners. Look, it is the market research and consulting firm covering the Asia games market and its consumers, and therefore the per- Perfect voice, Lisa, on to tell us just ultimately how much of a shock this was. The market seems to be reflecting in a shock. Were you surprised? Yeah, uh, I'm based in California and I woke up this morning a little bit surprised to see all this news coming through. And I saw that the market value of Tencent and some of the major game companies were declining. I think that some of that is a knee-jerk reaction and I'm a little bit surprised by the severity that the markets have applied to this new regulatory kind of discussion because it's not even a final set of regulations yet. There's still going to yes. be a month of, uh, of discussion and input from the industry. And for the most part, the regulations that were quote unquote announced were, have already been in place for quite some time. They are draft rules, and the aim is to essentially limit the amount of time that a player can spend on a particular title logged in to a particular online game. It all goes back to the rationale. Why uh, is the top regulator doing this? Yeah. Well, the National Press and Publications Administration, the NPPA, is the regulator in China that monitors and regulates all of the game's world effectively, although there are several other regulators that touch the space for internet cafes and esports and so much more. But the NPPA has put out these measures uh, for the administration and protection of online games, and, and, and frankly, I don't know if that's the exact title, but I think that's something similar to that we were reading through this morning. And uh, those measures do not all deal with the amount of time people can spend on games. There's a lot of regulations around the protection of youth, which have already been in place since September 2021, when there was a, like a big push to overhaul uh, how youth gamers under age 18 in China can interact and spend time on games. Uh, some of the, of the measures that were discussed in today's um, document are sort of a repeat of those and there are some new ones that might impact adult gamers primarily around there might be some limits on the total spending uh, on loot boxes and on the trading of in-game items between people or via the platform that they come from but again there is no defined limit set yet and while there are 710 million gamers in China uh, and 
$47 billion in revenue, and by our estimation, rising to $57 billion over the next few years, uh, some, of the, some of that revenue might uh, be impacted by these new rulings, but we really don't know what it is yet. Yeah. So at the moment, maybe a knee-jerk reaction, Lisa. Are the right names being impacted by the knee-jerk reaction? We did see Ubisoft. We did see some other, not just purely Chinese-focused names being in, in wrapped up in all of this. Well, you know, Ubisoft should actually be on the positive because today, in at the same time that these new regulations uh, the draft of them was announced, the Chinese government did the world a favor and also announced the approval of 40 imported titles mm. for ISBN licenses. And that is a coveted license. And it brings the total this year to, I believe, 98 imported games approved, which is higher than last year and the year before and the year before that. So it's actually quite positive. And Ubisoft is one of the game companies that had a title approved. And I think that was called Horizons uh, Phoenix Rising. And so Ubisoft if anything, should be benefiting from today's announcements that rather than get hit by it. Uh, thanks to Lisa Cosmas Hansen, President and CEO of Nico Partners. Just such a deep knowledge of the video games industry globally, but particularly in China. Thank you so much. China tech is under more scrutiny. The U.S. Commerce Department is set to begin gathering information of legacy semiconductors made in China to understand just how reliant the U.S. is on Chinese-made chips. Joining us with the latest, Bloomberg's Mackenzie Hawkins, normally of D.C., but in San Francisco. Actually, while you and I were asleep overnight, the Chinese uh, government responded to this issue. What did they have to say? So what we saw out of Washington over the past couple of days is the Biden administration is weighing tariffs on older model semiconductors produced in China. Now, the Chinese said that that would actually hurt the U.S., that would undermine free markets and fair competition. Of course, the U.S. doesn't see China as a market-based actor and a fair player itself, which is the reason that Washington is considering pursuing duties. So let's talk about that behavior that, once again, Gina Raimondo is really responding to. The worry here is what, they're sort of flooding the market with cheaper goods? Exactly. So the U.S. has introduced controls on the most advanced cutting-edge semiconductors in China, which are the components that power everything from your phone to your car to weapon systems. But older generation chips, which are still essential to the global economy, Beijing has doubled down on production of those. And the worry is that Chinese chip makers could undercut their competitors with cheaper prices or use that technology as a choke point that could gutter the U.S. economy and really send the entire world into a tailspin if China decides that the U.S. and its allies can't get Chinese goods. What you have been reporting on consistently is that tariffs and prohibitive action goes hand in hand with subsidy. And what the U.S. is trying to do is onshore an entire industry and they're realizing, it seems, that they're going to have to take action on, on exports and imports at the same time to be competitive. Exactly. So it was actually a shortage of legacy chips during the COVID pandemic that spurred Washington to enact the CHIPS Act, which puts $100 billion of subsidies on offer for chip makers, trying to convince them, hey, let's manufacture these critical electronic components here. And the U.S. is doing a similar thing with electric vehicles and other clean energy technologies through the Inflation Reduction Act, which is Biden's signature climate law. Now the U.S. is weighing tariffs on a lot of the goods that they're subsidizing manufacturers to make in the U.S. We're that Chinese companies could undermine that effort. The tits, the tats that go on, Mackenzie How Hawkins, we thank you so much for really covering what is, of course, the ongoing narrative and has been throughout the year of 2023.
uh, global supply chains are a top and critical story. Attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels on commercial traffic in the Red Sea are causing havoc in one of the world's most critical waterways, disrupting shipping and endangering the global economy. For more on the picture of that global supply chain, we're joined by Ryan Peterson, the CEO of Flexport, a leader in global supply chain technology and data, frankly, as well. Um, Let's bring up a map of, of global shipping lanes and, and explain what's happening. The Suez Canal is a principal route. It's a shortcut. Attacks are impacting the ability of carriers to go through that shortcut. What is the net result that you're seeing? Yeah, and you're seeing an effect, especially in the container shipping lines, where there's effectively no container shipping lines transiting through the Red Sea right now. So you see a lot of dots that are going through there, but these are other kinds of shipping lines. But the ocean containers, this is what carries most of the goods that you buy, finished goods traveling in containers, have, have decided it's just not safe um, for crew member safety. One of them got hit with a missile, two got ner- narrowly missed, and these companies said it's not worth it, um, both the insurance premiums but also just crew member safety. And so they're going around. The impact is, the easiest way to think about it is, well, it's a 25% longer journey. Right. Um, and now, of course, that's delayed, but it's, it's less about the delays than it is that's a reduction in supply of ships because you now need more ships to service the trade lane. Is it 25% more ships? In our Bloomberg reporting, Flexport has shared data on some of those diversions, right? Around 180 vessels finding an alternative route. Just explain why Flexport tracks that data. Oh, well, we're one of the largest freight forwarders in the world, and so we're, and we're technology-based. Platform, based. essentially. Yeah, it's a, t- it's a platform for shipping cargo around the world. And so we, one of the things that makes people choose Flexport is we do a good job of monitoring where the cargo is. Um, and we use satellites for that. We also use integrations with the carriers. One interesting point about technology here is, like, a lot of the um, ships that are transiting the Red Sea or that are near that area have turned off their satellite transponder. Um, so, because they don't want to be targeted by the, the rebels, can use the same data. So at the exact moment, you'd like to see where's the ship, uh, what's going on. It disappears from your system. So, um, But, you know, a 25% reduction in supply can lead to a huge swing in price. We're seeing prices between three to four times higher for shipping from Asia to Europe on ocean freight. And that's a big impact on the price of consumer goods. We talk about inflation. Maybe people think it's under control, but all of a sudden you have these new factors that weren't accounted for. And we've seen the price of oil tick up a bit, Ryan. What about the impact on your own business? Because many would say during the supply chain headaches, that puts it lightly, of what occurred during 2020, 2021, well, that was a boon time for flex. How does it ultimately impact you? Um, well, at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to serve our customers and do a good job. So when prices go way up, they have to pay more. Uh, and, th- th- you know, of course, that, that is what it is. It's price. It's out of your control. But it creates a lot of chaos. And, in, you know, because imagine that ship that got hit with a missile, for example, the MSC ship, the Palladium 3, it got hit just off the coast of Yemen with a missile. Well, it was meant to go to Barcelona and pick up four containers for a Flexport customer and bring them to Morocco next week. Uh, that's happening at mass on every ship that got diverted, have to replan every schedule. So teams are kind of working overtime right now trying to keep up with this and do a good job for our customers. That's what, that's what they pay us to do is make sure their cargo arrives on time or if not, that they're well informed about what's going on. And a lot of that customer relationship is something that you were already focused on when you came back to the helm of Flexport, something you thought had perhaps been sacrificed during your transition. Ultimately, how are your employees engaged at this moment? How are they feeling? They've had, well, a relatively turbulent time, to put it lightly, of 2023. 
Uh, yeah, well, it's been a tough time for the last you know, decade uh, in global shipping. There's always ups and downs and, and chaos. Uh, this, we, we get pretty energized when there's something like this where you see, hey, the entire reason that we're here is to help people move cargo around the world and identify where it is, when it's going to arrive, get them accurate data. So we had you know, a team of engineers worked all weekend to um, re- completely update our product so that you can get, we turn every container ship orange on our map now. So if it's going around, the, if it's diverted or delayed because of the Suez crisis, it turns orange. Uh, that was, you know, kind of Herculean effort by our technology teams working all weekend. And uh, that's, that's, that's what energizes us and makes us really proud to, to be in this business. And so, Ryan, you're back at Flexport as CEO. When last you were on the show, you joined us as a newly uh, new member of Founders Fund's uh, team. Uh, Dave Clark then left Flexport and you went back to being CEO of Flexport. Explain how you manage your time between the two and, and what you're doing mostly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm still on the team at Founders Fund as well as a, part, as a venture partner there. I've uh, been mostly focused on Flexport. Flexport's a major holding for Founders Fund and I think they understand where I'm at right now. It's like, got to get, gotta get uh, Flexport going the right direction. We're, we're well ahead of our goals, so we feel good about that. Um, Founders Fund is a place where we're very patient looking for the perfect deals we're we're not out here the most active investor investor in the world uh we want we want to be contrarian we want to find things that other people aren't finding so it's you know it's a moment for founders fund in general to say hey let's take assessment we've been not really aggressive writing tons of checks we're looking for the fat pitch of like the perfect company that comes along and we do get to see most of the companies out there that are uh you know everybody wants to get founders fund as as an entrepreneur i can say that having um tried to get every uh, the best investor has always been founders fund I know Dave, Dave took to social media when that, that change happened, but just as a point of clarification, when you, when you did join Founders Fund, at that time, were you expecting that you'd have to go back to Flexport, or that's something you reacted to? Uh, no, I think uh, it, wasn't, it was sort of a board decision that happened a couple months after I'd been at Founders Fund, um, and realized, hey, the, the Flexport needs to get more customer-centric, needs to really focus on, uh, gr- well, to grow in, in freight forwarding, it's a B2B business business to business, it means you have to spend a lot of time with your customers. And uh, I think that was something that we weren't seeing enough of. And that's why I came back to Flexport to go really reignite that culture of Flexport of customer obsession. And you sort of said that actually you're outperforming where you thought you'd be, Ryan. I'm interested in, well, as we're about to all perhaps break up for the holidays, you've also got an insight into that because... Flexport bought Shopify's logistics part of the business and then how much have you been able to focus on that this new area of growth or how much has it ultimately been a bit of a distraction to what now is the focus of of B2B logistics Oh well, that's that's also B two B. You know, it's serving serving businesses is our, our customers for that. I've been. Um, it has a really great leadership team, and we sort of run it as a business unit. That's uh, I wouldn't call it autonomous, but it, it runs on its own as a with an uh, amazing woman heading that named Parisa, and she so she runs that. But uh, I work with her almost every day on on strategies and how do we get cross sell that into our core customer base for the freight forwarding business and vice versa. So no, it's not a distraction at all. It's really part of the end to end strategy of taking goods all the way from. A customer's factory now into consumer stores and to retail stores and, and do that on an end-to-end basis. And with things like the Suez, you see how powerful that is because you know if you're if you're just sitting there running a fulfillment center, there's no inventory, you don't know when it's going to arrive, mm. you're not connected all the way back and able to reroute things and plan things and make sure the cargo gets where it needs to be. And boy, is everyone looking at when their deliveries are coming when it comes to the holidays at the current moment. To that end, is the consumer strong from your perspective? 
seems to be uh, in the U.S., you know, we see demand is back above 2019 levels. Um, of course, volumes went way up for shipping, shipping volumes during the pandemic when people weren't able to go and buy goods and services. But what's very interesting is that while um, service consumption has gone way up, you know, things like travel and uh, whatever it might be, restaurants and massages, <laughs> those things have gone back up. Um, but goods consumption hasn't come down. It's still above 2019 levels, uh, pretty healthy consumption. And a lot of people predicted, oh, goods is going to come down as these services go, go up. But actually, services have gone up and, and goods have stayed strong. So, yeah, the consumer seems to be pretty healthy in the United States. Nice macro perspective to end it on, Ryan. Thank you so much for your time. Ryan Peterson is called Flexport CEO. Busy time across the board. Meanwhile, coming up, look, we're just talking about geopolitical issues and and real attacks in the Red Sea. We're now going to talk about cyber attacks, too, poised to increase, unfortunately, in 2024 after wreaking havoc this year. We're going to get an inside look with Bipul Sina. He's, of course, Rubric. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Recent reporting from the Washington Post has detailed how the Chinese military in particular is ramping up its ability to disrupt key American infrastructure, including power, water utilities, as well as communications and transportation systems. And this year alone, cyber attacks have wreaked havoc across several industries, not to mention healthcare, for example. Rubrik CEO Bipul Sina is here with us to really talk about all the data that you focus on. Of course, you're focusing on data management, recovery from ransomware attacks. You're also thinking about how it can accelerate cloud mobility it feels as though it's a bit of a murky outlook for 2024 when it comes to cybersecurity. What has happened is that this the the everybody is realizing that cyber attacks are inevitable. 
and every organization in the world has already been penetrated and the latest news around China and the US proves that point. So everybody has to think about how do they plan to prepare to recover and be resilient against cyber attacks, be it is nation state actors or somebody's board in their basement attacking large corporations. And that's the landscape we are looking at for the next year. Let's spare a thought this holiday season, Caroline, for the CISO or the CIO. And I'm not talking about chief investment officer. Here on Bloomberg Technology, we're talking about chief information officer, right? If something goes wrong, they're the first people you blame mm. in, in the context of a cyber attack. People, is the CISO, chief information security officer or CEO, going to be the hero of the C-suite in 2024? I personally believe that the CIOs and CISOs job is merging because there is no IT without security. And if you look at the evolution of the job, the job of the CIO is to put together a set of services for the business to reduce the risk. And CISOs plays a major role. But the challenge is that the cyber has emerged to be a big risk. And the latest couple of latest cases where CISOs have been personally responsible for cyber attacks. So in some ways, they are the heroes as well as they are the victim. So I feel that the discussion has to be reframed where instead of just focusing on preventing attack and stopping attack, CISOs has to, has to be thinking about how do I recover because attacks are inevitable. And uh, that's the landscape. Understandably, many CISOs and CIOs watch this program. And so if you're out there and you are working at a technology company, Give a bit of support this, this holiday season to your CISO or COO. Where the attacks are targeting, you talk about sort of edge devices. What we mean is routers, points of vulnerability in, in IT infrastructure. Why do they focus attacks there? Attackers are going after the easiest way to enter. In many cases, attackers are not hacking in. They are logging in. They are actually playing with our emotions to get our credentials and then log in and to do the damage. Stopping attack is impossible because there are just so many ways to get in because the, the volume of data, velocity, variability of the data has gone beyond human comprehension. So the question is, what is the strategy to be able to recover and be resilient against attack. And everybody has to focus on that. That's how the CISOs will succeed, and that's how we'll succeed in the new year. You're also potentially going to be IPOing in the new year. How's that going? I mean, we are, we are uh, focused again on uh, building a long-term business. I'll leave the IPO to the experts. I can't comment on it. Hmm. All right, Rubrik, CEO, Bipo Senior. Come back again. And we will ask you again when you're going to take your company public. We appreciate your time and the outlook for 2024. Let's turn to the world of entertainment. We're all talking about it online. Lionsgate, the studio behind The Hunger Games, John Wick, Twilight Saga, is taking its studio business public. Now, that's Mara Spack in a deal that values the business at $4.6 billion, but that does include debt. Joining us now to discuss Bloomberg's Felix Gillette. And Felix... Why this seems to be a theme of ultimately big media companies splitting themselves in two. Yeah, well, they've been talking about this for years about separating the uh, movie and TV assets from essentially from stars, the cable and streaming distributor. And yeah, it creates a pure play content company. Um, 
you know, there's going to be a lot of M&A activity in the media space next year. We've just been talking about Warner Brothers Discovery kicking the tires on Paramount. Um, by you know now you have a you know another option for a big content library. Um, if you're looking to bulk up your streaming service, um, you know you look at Lionsgate, probably 18, 19, 20,000 movies, TV shows in their library um, that you could add in. And now you don't have to deal with stars, which is another problematic decline. Yeah. Cable asset. I mean, you say you don't have to deal with stars. I guess that's my question is, what are the underlying factors that move to the separation? And indeed, the underlying factors behind the idea of a Warner Brothers Paramount, is it just that kind of broadcast linear TV is dead? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just the continued decline of uh, people cutting the cord for cable. Um, also, TV advertising, uh, you know, is also going downward. So, what do people want? Well, the studio, you know, I mean, Lionsgate. You look at their box office this year; they did great. Um, they had two really big hits. Uh, Saw was also pretty popular. I think they'll end up as probably the sixth uh, biggest U.S. domestic distributor this year in, at theatrical, uh, over five hundred million dollars in ticket sales. Um, so that part of the business is very appealing. Um, but you know what's going to happen with the SAR side of it? You know uh, they're already losing. Everyone's cutting their cord. You're losing subscribers. That's just going to be a continued trend right. into the future. Felix Gillette, we thank you. It's going to be a busy ride for 2024 when it comes to media M&A. Meanwhile, earlier this year, Apple Engineering alums launched an AI pin that's campaigning to replace phones. Just the other day, I had a chance to try it out with the co-founders of the company. Have a watch of Humane. Wearables on a few wish lists this year, and maybe your name is already down on the wait list for the AI pin made by Humane. No ordinary sleep or fitness tracker. This AI wearable wants to replace your phone. They want you to talk instead of type. They want you to remain present instead of swipe. And there's been so much hype around these former AI employees, Bethany Bongiorno and Imran Chowdhury, and what they've made, that we wanted to get, well, a reality check on actually using it. Translate into Japanese. Where is the best sushi local to here? Capture this. The husband and wife team hope that the AI pin will be in consumers' hands early 2024. And look, if it's as easy as it seems, I'd be interested in having it, but alongside my phone. Because for now, I think it's pretty hard to prise yourself away from the screen fully. Look, the apps of music and search are great, but what about payments? What about other apps that we interact with? For now, I think you're going to have to have both. And Ed, when we think about the hype behind these former Apple employees, the hype was backing from Sam Altman himself. The hype was hundreds of millions right. going towards them before the actual concept became a proof point. Now they've actually got to get these things into consumers' hands. The theory is by early next year. I think it's interesting, right? Which do you go to, the touch and voice or the hand hologram? Both? Mm -hmm. It's hard to see. Let's stick with AI. A growing list of competitors emerged this year to take on ChatGPT. What can we expect for next year, 2024? Joining us now is Bloomberg's Shireen Ghaffari. Uh, there is a long list. You wrote about them in your, your newsletter. Where do you want to start? Uh, there are many competitors out there. Yeah, I'll say just, you know, to, to lay the groundwork here, 
The real game changer was when these open source AI models started to come onto the scene. And so first we had Meta release Llama and then Llama 2. And now we have a new buzzy French startup, Mistral, that's launched its own uh, open source model. And what those do is allow really anyone for free to download a very similar um, technology to what OpenAI has. Albeit it's, a, you know, I would some people say six months or a year behind the closed source models, the proprietary ones. But that's really enabled this whole wave of new startups that are not just building on top of OpenAI's API, but they're actually, you know, manufacturing these LLMs, um, building off of what's just open and out there for free. When I think of Mistral, I think of perhaps some of the lobbying they were having to do of the EU AI Act and ensuring that this sort of regulation that starts to come in, globally speaking, doesn't choke off the innovation from the smaller players. Is that a key concern for 2024? Yeah, absolutely. There's a real divide in the AI industry right now about whether um, there should be regulation on open source models. Of course, the regu regulatory concern there is that um, if anyone and everyone can develop an AI model, could then it be used you know, for, for something that's harmful? Could someone go and use that to create a novel virus and unleash it on the world? Could it, you know, someone make it and start um, having the code delete itself or replicate itself? Now, I'd say these are all very hypothetical scenarios and I think you know the open source community would say that that's that's all way too um, hypothetical of a risk for us to actually worry about right now. Shirin Ghaffari is a great story to end the year on. We thank you very much indeed. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology for uh, well, what a year. For I mean what a year 2023. 2024 is going to be even bigger. Recap on the podcast. A big thanks to all that listen from SF and New York City for 2023. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.